Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another awesome episode of Living It Up in Line City. It has been a while, and I have been swamped under by a lot of things, but mostly it's been a crazy couple of months here in Singapore, with the COVID-19 crisis affecting the island in a big way. Not to mention how much it's affecting the world at large. I was supposed to put out two more episodes on xenophobia following the last one about the same topic, but so much has happened since then. Admittedly, I'm struggling with apprehension on this. The clear and present danger of the pandemic deserves a lot more attention, and I feel it's, I don't know, inappropriate to focus on trivialities like online rage over foreigners when there is a bigger crisis to worry about. That said, I definitely still want to talk about it, but I have to put in a wee bit more work into being mindful of the current situation, and also I want to include the larger conversation of xenophobia that has been triggered around the world by the COVID-19 pandemic. Rest assured, folks, those episodes are on their way and they're coming soon. In the meantime, I hope everyone is doing okay. I hope everyone is staying safe, staying at home, and taking precautionary measures like personal hygiene and social distancing. I know, it's hard. As an extroverted person, God, it's hard. But the predicament is what it is, and we must all protect ourselves and our families. Let's do our part and flatten the curve, guys. This episode is going to be a very quick one, and it's about the dehumanization of Chinese people in popular culture during this COVID-19 crisis. I want to give some context. Today is the 1st of April, and currently there have been 800,000 cases of the coronavirus in the world so far. The USA is leading the pack at 160,000 cases, followed by Italy at 100,000, Spain at 94,000, and China at 81,000. Two months ago, China was at the top of the list by a large margin. But over the last few weeks, the curve of new cases has been flattening, and the number of active patients have gone down to less than 3,000. Things do look hopeful for China, and the city of Wuhan, the epicenter of the virus, is slowly regaining some normalcy, albeit slowly and cautiously. Now, there has been a fair bit of contention about China's current situation, with a skepticism around the accuracy of the data that the Chinese government is putting out there. This skepticism is shared by a significant chunk of friends and people I know, and they have expressed as much on their social media. I'm not one to question this, and truth be told, I don't have enough information to counter that. But I have noticed certain patterns around the conversations I've had with my friends over the last few weeks and around what they share on social media. Some things are super obvious. China is consistently portrayed as the villain. Not only for being the epicenter of the pandemic, but also for the initial cover-ups by the Chinese government in attempts to downplay the virus crisis. There needs to be some context here. The Chinese government did something similar during the SARS crisis in 2003, losing precious time and lives in the process. They received universal flack, both from Chinese citizens and from governments around the world for how they handled things. They have since learned from the SARS pandemic 17 years ago and have been a lot more forthcoming this time around, but there are indicators that they still didn't do it so soon enough. Criticism of the Chinese government is warranted, of course, 
but there has been a disturbing conflation of the Chinese state with the Chinese people, by news organizations and also by regular folks. I find that when it comes to talking about China, the line that separates the state and the people is blurred and more often than not, obliterated entirely. Why does this happen? Living in Singapore, it's hard not to see the prejudice local Singaporeans have towards people from mainland China. It's a whole other topic and one that I will cover in my series on xenophobia. But for now, let's just simplify this and say that folks from mainland China are not well liked here. The prejudice is out in the open and it's normalized in local society. This prior prejudice towards PRC folks fuels a lot of the criticism for how the Chinese government has been handling the COVID-19 crisis. The virus's origins in bats and wildlife further propagate the already prevalent notions of the supposedly uncouth and uncivilized nature of people from China. Not just Singaporeans though, I see similar sentiments among Indians too. I subscribe to online communities from both India and Singapore and I get to see a lot of commonalities in the collective hate towards China and Chinese people. India has had a fair number of political tussles with China, which has aggravated the perception of China on the ground, compounded by the perceived strangeness of Chinese culture and Chinese cuisine in the collective Indian psyche. I dare say similar opinions and perceptions exist all across the world. I am staggered by the number of conspiracy theories around China and the number of friends who wholeheartedly believe in them. I made the unfortunate mistake of engaging with some of them and I was honestly shocked at the level of invective being directed towards Chinese people, their evil intentions, their barbaric dietary habits, and some of that invective was slammed at me for supposedly being pro-China. Demonizing China and Chinese people isn't new. It has been going on for two centuries at the very least. During the gold rush era in the USA in the 1840s and 1850s, there was an influx of Chinese people looking for prosperity and settling down. And they were tolerated, if not well-liked, for their strange, un-European ways. Animosity against them rose as the gold supplies dwindled, and the Chinese settlers moved to the cities and took up low-wage jobs. In the post-Civil War Depression, their presence became politicized and Chinese settlers were painted as leeches to the economy and were lampooned and vilified in popular media. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 legitimized the discrimination, effectively banning Chinese and Orientals from entering the country and denying existing residents of Chinese origin any chance of US citizenship. The law was repealed in 1943, but in the 16 years that it lasted, the damage it caused for the community was immense. Racial stereotypes were propagated during the golden age of Hollywood, and arguably a lot, if not all, of the contemporary perceptions around Chinese people stem from there and persist to this day. Similar legislation existed in Canada and Australia. The Chinese Immigration Act of Canada was effective from 1924 to 1947, while Australia's controversial White Australia policy lasted 72 years before it was repealed in 1973. 
both of these countries were very much influenced by the American Chinese Exclusion Act. If you have listened to my previous podcast episode on the history of xenophobia in Singapore, you will know that there was a Chinese exclusion law in Singapore too in the 1930s. It has been a long time since then, but there has always been a perception of strangeness around Chinese culture and Chinese people in the West. Even while Chinese immigrants around the world were settling in and finding their identities in their host countries, decades of negative stereotyping and nativist antagonism continued. Eating exotic wildlife has been a Chinese stereotype for so long, and there's so much to cover here, but I'll keep it short. While there is some credence to a certain adventurousness in Chinese cuisine, which in some parts includes a consumption of exotic animals, a lot of the prejudice against Chinese culinary habits stems from a long-held discomfort with unfamiliar smells and tastes from a historically poor and undesirable diaspora. Look no further than the prevalent belief that MSG is bad for health. The origin of the myth lay in the distrust of weird oriental food in the US and has since been debunked, but the myth has persisted and flourished even. Living in India, we believed that MSG would cause backaches, stomach aches, and sexual impotence even. It was the narrative that was fed to us, and we had no reason or incentive to challenge it. As if it wasn't obvious enough already, the global reach and influence of American media has shaped the way we process other cultures. Take a moment to think about this. Your perceptions of almost every country you know, except maybe your neighbors, is based on the movies that you've watched. And if Hollywood was a large part of your media diet, you will have inherited their beliefs and their portrayals, and all of the biases that come with it. Of course, most of us apply common sense and don't take them to heart, but a lot of us still do, myself included. Side note, when I see my Indian acquaintances on social media scream and shout about barbaric bat-eating Chinese culture out to destroy the world, I find it supremely ironic that as we speak, there is a bunch of people in our own country extolling the virtues of drinking cow's urine. Of course, I know that it's a case of hashtag not all Indians, and I just hope that people also understand that eating bats is a case of hashtag not all Chinese. Through most of the 20th century, China was an impoverished nation whose people struggled with generations of political turmoil. In a way, it kind of explains the prevalence of Chinese diaspora, most of whom escaped poverty and persecution across the last century and beyond. The Great Chinese Famine of 1959 resulted in the deaths of millions of Chinese, some estimates suggesting it was up to 45 million. Millions more lost their lives in the Cultural Revolution that spanned a decade until 1976. The magnitude of persecution and death is staggering. All of this was under Mao Zedong's chairmanship and the Chinese Communist Party was highlighted as yet another failure of the communist model. This aligned with the American obsession with anti-communism at the time and the propaganda machine went on overdrive, painting anything communist as bad that ought to be stopped. 
What made things interesting and more complicated was the meteoric rise of China since 1978 under Deng Xiaoping. Thanks to the economic reforms, China did a turnaround so hard it got whiplash. In 40 years, poverty rates plummeted and the Chinese economic machine kicked into high gear. It has been on overdrive ever since. Now, as the republic grew richer and more influential, the Chinese government started flexing its chops around the region, which a number of neighbors would call expansionist bullying. The influence spread in global trade and commerce too, where Chinese industries positioned themselves as indispensable to global supply chains. Over the decades, there have been concerns about the state's influence in these private industries and the potential ramifications of dealing with these companies. Also, a number of political incidents, a significantly large number of them in fact, over the years added to the reputation of China being an evil totalitarian state with a very low tolerance for dissent. The reputation does reflect a social and political reality and it is very real. And this can also be seen in the internet, in the Chinese internet. The internet came to China in 1994, and just three years later, in 1997, internet censorship by the state promptly kicked in. From the get-go, the Chinese government wasn't comfortable with dissent or any challenge to its influence, either from outside the country or from within, and thus the Great Firewall of China came to be. Chinese internet users have been sequestered into a walled garden where they do not have access to a lot of services that defines the internet for us. Google. Facebook, Twitter, among others. Even so, within that walled space, Chinese internet flourished with its own distinctive flair. Even under the watchful eye of the government and their trigger hair approach to banning words and memes even, people expressed themselves and created social ecosystems influenced by the world outside. On the flip side of the coin, we don't see the lives of Chinese people at all. I apologize for the long essay on historical context, but this is where I want to make my point. Chinese relatability is in short supply. As outsiders, we have very little access to the people of China by virtue of language and by the lack of common ground to interact in social media. Our opinions of China and Chinese people are therefore based on the politics of the state and the perceptions we have of Chinese people through media, through entrenched stereotypes, and through ugly tourist behavior. None of these are representative of Chinese people as a whole, even if we are tempted to look askance at Chinese tour groups. Without relatable Chinese people, relatable Chinese stories, and relatable Chinese experiences, we have been limiting ourselves to narratives without that human touch. Here's a recent observation that made me think about it. Many of my friends have shared posts on social media about how Italians have been showing spirit by singing from their balconies. Many have expressed shock and despair that Tom Hanks has been infected with COVID-19. Many people talked about Prince Charles testing positive to the coronavirus. Celebrities, for all their privilege, have always been bastions of relatability, and we generally feel 
what celebrities feel. We have a parasocial connection with them, as we do even more with social media celebrities owing to the more intimate and interactive nature of the medium. Even about people we don't share a connection with, stories about a 21-year-old's untimely death got an outpouring of grief as the news covered her life and times before tragedy struck. A whole bunch of my friends share a ton of links on social media and it gives me some insight into what they like and what they prioritize. And what I've noticed is that there's a glaring absence of Chinese narratives across the board. We connect and commiserate with human stories and human tragedies. But on my social media feed, there were precious little ways to do so for the people of China. It's not necessarily the fault of the medium, but it's most definitely the fault of me being in a bubble that de-emphasizes the crisis through Chinese eyes. And I dare say a lot of my friends are in this bubble too. The people of Wuhan didn't get this kind of airtime outside China. The conversations about the folks on Ground Zero was almost exclusively about the people as a collective suffering under the mismanagement and secretiveness of the Chinese government. Cue the criticism of Chinese government. Cue the criticism of eating weird shit. Cue the criticism of Chinese people in general relying on stereotypes. Cue outlandish conspiracy theories because China is evil. Fuck China! Due to these factors, the suffering of the Chinese folks in the Hubei province is dehumanized. They are reduced to numbers, and worse, they're dwarfed by the monolithic boogeyman named China. We rely on an internet that's globally connected, tied by a common English language, for the most part. And it has to be said, it's a fairly US-centric environment. Our information about China comes from the narratives of the outsiders looking in, and on the other side of things, Chinese internet users often don't have the representation in the global internet stage to bring that human relatability to the mix. To us, they are a weird, mysterious other, and looked upon with suspicion because China. Because of lazy narratives that go uncorrected and prejudices that go unchecked, people of Chinese origin, in fact anyone who looks remotely Asian, are being targeted in racist and xenophobic attacks both online and in real life across the world. We can scream and shout about decrying racism and xenophobia all we want and tell people not to be racist or xenophobic, but that's like telling an angry person to stop, stop being angry or telling a sad person to stop being sad. It essentially does nothing to contribute to the situation except show off our sanctimonious attitude. It's not helpful nor effective. I know I probably sound like some social justice warrior screaming, think about the people of China, look at me, I'm smart, I'm knowledgeable, I'm empathetic, I'm better than you. I assure you, that's the last thing I want to be. I want to be effective. I want to address how we can humanize the crisis and the people of China who are like us in so many ways. Dear friends from India, our cultures have so much in common, from our myths to the family politics during our festivals. 
Facebook groups like Subtle Asian Traits and Subtle Curry Traits have shown that there's a lot more common among people this part of the world than we realize. Let's remember this. Let's remember the human. You know, I used to be that person, judging Chinese people because of their authoritarian government and their politics. Judging Chinese people because of third-hand accounts of a shitty experience with the tourists that I read online. Judging the weirdness of Chinese food without realizing that it was my own discomfort with unfamiliar food at play. I hope I've changed for the better. I still have my biases, but the more I hang out and interact with people of different cultures and different backgrounds, the more I can learn to recognize the human first. I hope we can all do that. Also, if we can pray for people like Tom Hanks, surely we can share our concern for people closer to home. Dear friends in Singapore, I know that local society's relationship with mainland Chinese is a difficult one and perhaps a string of incidents, some of which I've touched upon in, the part, in part one of the series on understanding xenophobia, perhaps some of those incidents have contributed to the negative perceptions and stereotypes. But let's take a step back and understand that this does not represent the community as a whole. And most of the time, PRC folks have assimilated and have been effectively invisible. While the egregious examples of bad behavior takes up all of the local attention and unfairly paints all of them with the same brush. These are stories and narratives we've all absorbed from friends and media by osmosis and have gone unchallenged for so long. Not gonna lie, I was one of them too. Let's instead make narratives that are shaped by personal interaction rather than what the media or the internet tells us. Let's reach out to Chinese people we know. Let's look at meeting people from China. Let's know their story. Stereotypes have a way of disappearing once you knock on the door. Living in Singapore, I now have friends from China, and I used to meet up with folks from China a lot through social meetups in and around the city. That relatability and those personal connections have grounded me so much. Let's break bread. Food is an incredible way for people to bond. Of course, during this COVID-19 situation, we should self-isolate and avoid non-essential contact when we can. But when all this ends, let's look at exploring new foods with new friends and I guarantee you, your experiences will be all the richer for it. Let's add some relatability in social media and follow the stories of Chinese people through this troubling time. I myself am not too familiar with Chinese social media outside of Li Cixi, but I'm keen to learn about more and see the world through their eyes. I've been looking to read or watch authentic Chinese perspectives, but it can be quite hard, especially because of the language barriers on the internet. The few English podcasts about China that I listen to are by expats, and while they're valuable and interesting, I can smell the pervasive trademark expat perspective from a mile away. Not that it's a bad thing, it's just not what I'm looking for. If any of you know of a cool social media figure from China that I should follow, please let me know. Alright, so that's all I wanted to talk about really. Please let me know what you think of this episode and reach out to me on the DMs. Let me know if I missed out on any other reasons for why Chinese people have been perceived as an other by so many. 
Let me know if I come across as a pro-China bot and I will tweak my algorithm a bit to make it more believable. And for those of you who are eagerly waiting for part two of the series on understanding xenophobia in Singapore, I can assure you that it's coming soon. Until then, stay safe, stay indoors, and stay motivated through these crazy times. My name is Rindo, and you are listening to Living Up in Lion City.